I read somewhere that when he was in office, President Harry S. Truman had on his desk in the Oval Office a sign which simply said, the buck stops here. In fact, I found a picture of that uh, from his days in the Oval Office. It was President Truman who popularized that expression. And really the sign had to do with the saying that was popular in his day, pass the buck. Uh, I'm sure you've heard that expression. You've used that expression. You know what it means to pass the buck? It's to avoid responsibility for something, to shirk responsibility. And so in, in you know, his administration, he was dealing with the issue of government agencies being notorious for passing the buck. <laughs> I think they're notorious for that in every generation. But failing to make decisions, take decisions, or take ownership of decisions, and take the responsibility for those decisions. And so essentially, when President Truman said the buck stops here, he meant ultimately as the president of this country, I'm responsible. Uh, I'm holding you accountable. And so it was intended to convey this sense of both personal responsibility as well as accountability. Now, I want you to keep that in mind as you turn with me to Revelation 15 tonight because we could very well inscribe those same words above the chapter heading in our Bibles for Revelation 15. The buck stops here because here we see humanity being held accountable for its sins. And so this is a passage that really presents us with this picture of the inescapable nature of God's final judgment. Now, the last couple of weeks in particular, we've been dealing with this subject of wrath, and you know, the vast majority of what we see presented in these chapters in Revelation is the wrath of God as it's being poured out in that final end-time judgment, the tribulation period, what the Old Testament prophets refer to as the day of the Lord. Now, one of the things we need to keep in mind is that God is glorified by all of his attributes. In other words, everything that God does, he does for the sake of his glory, ultimately. And we may be tempted to assume that God is more glorified over one, or most glorified by one, and not so much by the other, when in reality, that's not true. Everything that God does, he does for the sake of his own glory, because he's God. We may be led to believe that God's love somehow is more glorious than is God's justice. Uh, God's glory, you think about his glory, it's the sum total of all of his attributes. So when we say that God is love, we're not saying that part of God is love and part of God is it's holy, no. When the scripture says that God is love, it's saying this is who he is, this is his nature. When it says that God is holy, he's the thrice holy God, the only one of his attributes emphasized three times, holy, holy, holy. This is saying that in his nature he is holy, this is who he is. And therefore, God is just as much glorified through the exercise of his wrath as he is through the expression of his love. 
And this is most clearly seen at the cross of Jesus Christ because it's there at the cross where God's love for sinners as well as his justice towards sin, these are both upheld all to the praise of his own glory. You say, well, God is holy. You know, he's perfect in all that he does. He's true. And in his justice, he has to punish sin because of who he is. At the same time, he's also love, uh, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so there's this tension then, it would seem, between God's red-hot holiness and his love, and how is it that sinners can be saved? Does God merely uh, wink at sin and overlook our sin? No, all sin has got to be met in the fierceness of God's wrath because that's who he is. He's holy. But you see, it's at the cross of Jesus Christ that God's holiness and his love are both clearly on display as Jesus Christ drank the cup of wrath in my place and in your place so that we could be forgiven. So my sin has been judged at the cross of Jesus, and that's what the gospel tells us. So this passage then that we come to here in Revelation 15, it's a a reminder that God is glorified through the outpouring of his wrath and the upholding of his justice. He's glorified in, in and through all that he does. And if that might sound strange to you, keep in mind that this is the same pattern that we find really all throughout the Bible, whether it be the flood in Noah's day or God's judgment on the Egyptians, um, the defeat of Israel's enemies throughout the history of the Old Testament, God is always glorified in all that he does. Perfect in his love, but he's also just. In fact, you kind of see this in, in the encounter that Moses has with God. You remember Moses asks this question of God, I want to see your glory. Show me your glory. And of course, no man can look upon God and live. And so what God says that he'll do for Moses is he'll hide him in the cleft of the rock and cause all of his goodness to pass before Moses. And Moses catches a glimpse of God as God has passed by. And Exodus 34 says that the Lord descended in a cloud and he stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Now listen to this. Here's his character. This is who he is. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Now listen to this. But who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So in response to this, this proclamation of God's character, he's perfect in love, he's perfect in holiness. In response to this, Moses bows his head toward the earth and he worships. The thing is, we don't have the luxury of being able to pick and choose which parts of God we like and which parts of God we don't like. And someone says, well, I like the God who is love, but I'm not really 
fond of this God who is wrathful and angry with the wicked. But you see, this ain't Burger King. You can't have it your way. So God then is to be worshipped for all that he is and all that he does. And that includes his divine judgment on sin. And so this is a major lesson that we can take away from this passage here in Revelation chapter 15. God is a God of mercy. God is a God of love. Yet God is a God of justice who will meet sin in the fierceness of his wrath. And so what we find here in this 15th chapter is what I'm calling a prelude to judgment. Because as we've been working our way through the book of Revelation, you know that it's begun with the seven-sealed scroll and the breaking of those seven seals. With the breaking of the seventh seal, that leads to the seven trumpet judgments. With the sounding forth of the seventh trumpet, that then leads to these seven bowl judgments, uh, which we're introduced to here in chapter 15, and then we actually see them described uh, in real time in chapter 16. So let's look at this prelude to judgment then, Revelation 15, verse number one. John says, then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And after this I looked and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So, seven angels with seven bowls which contain the final wrath of God to be poured out at the end of the tribulation period. Now, what you have here in Revelation is a series of judgments, the seals, the trumpets, and now the bowls, each of which increase in terms of their intensity. Remember Jesus described the last days and things happening in the last days. He said, when you see certain things happening, it will be like a woman who's about to give birth. And you have those birth pangs which begin. And even before the birth pangs, you've got the, what are they called, Dr. Futrell, the Braxton Hicks contractions, which could be false birth pangs. But even then, you know that, you know something? This baby's about to be here. And those birth pains increase 
with greater frequency until the birth takes place. It's kind of how it is with the end-time judgments of God that are described throughout Revelation with the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and now the bowl judgments. And so the idea then behind these bowl judgments, which we've come to after a couple of chapters of information that John has given, you know, to kind of fill in some gaps, to tell the story of the long war against God, waged against God by the enemy, Satan, who's the dragon. We met him in chapter 12. But now we're kind of coming back to the main action. And uh, the final judgment of God on God's enemies, it's going to come in the form of these bold judgments, and it's going to be poured out in rapid succession, one right after the other, uh, as we come to the end of the tribulation period. Now, before I get really go any further, I think it'd probably be a good to for us to just kind of take a time out and maybe consider what is it exactly that we mean when we're referring to the wrath of God. Because I think people have different ideas and concepts when they think of the wrath of God. Uh, critics of Christianity will make the claim that the angry, wrathful God of the Old Testament, uh, he's, he's nothing more than a tyrant on a rampage. And some would say, well, the God of the Old Testament, he's different than the God of the New Testament. Anybody ever heard anybody say something along those lines? You know, the God of the New Testament seems to be kind and patient, loving. The God of the Old Testament seems to be this angry, vindictive kind of deity. Well, the reality is the God of the Old is the God of the New. And God is unchanging in his character. And lest we forget... It's the Lamb of God who's pouring out the wrath of God here in Revelation. Jesus himself said that all judgment has been given to the Son. Uh, Paul tells the Thessalonian believers that when Jesus Christ returns, he's going to return in flaming fire, taking vengeance on his enemies who obey not the gospel of God. So don't get in your mind this idea that Jesus... And the God of the New Testament, he's, he's some different deity than the God we see in the Old Testament. But critics of Christianity often want to level that charge. You know, they kind of make him out to be this kid in the candy store who doesn't get what he wants, and so he pitches a temper tantrum, and, and that's the wrath of God, these angry outbursts. But that's not what the Scripture means whenever it talks about the wrath of God. So this is not some uncontrolled outburst. But what the Bible says about God's wrath is that wrath is his settled disposition towards sin and all that opposes his holiness. Uh, Romans 1.18, the Bible says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So his wrath, it's, it's not this outburst of, of foolish rage, kind of like what happens when you've experienced road rage or you've seen road rage. You know, just this angry outburst all of the sudden. That's not the wrath of God. No, it's the anger of God against sin that's being stored up until the day of his wrath when in his righteous and perfect judgment, God will render to every man according to his deeds. That's what Romans chapter 2 verses 5 and 6 say. Someone who's written about this is a theologian by the name of Joel Beakey, but listen to this. 
He said, as far as the wrath of God's concerned, we must not dilute the strong medicine of this doctrine in order to make it more palatable for our minds or hearts. That's the path to liberalism and unbelief. The severity of God's wrath goes hand in hand with the sweetness of his goodness. And he makes the point that were it not for the wrath of God against sin, God would not be a good God. Were it not for the anger of God and his settled disposition towards sin and all that is not in keeping with his perfect character, God would not be a good God worthy of our worship. Now, folks, let me tell you something. We're imperfect, fallible creatures. Don't compare the wrath and the anger of God with the angry outburst of sinful humanity. Now, to be sure, there are some things that should make us angry. But often it's how we react and what we do and what we say and the attitudes that we have when we're angry. And the scripture says, be angry and sin not. You know, when we see little ones taken advantage of, abused, mistreated, neglected, that should make us angry. There's something that appeals to a sense of justice that we have, a sense of moral right and wrong that, that has been woven into the fabric of our humanity because we've been made in the image of God, and yet all of that has been affected by sin so that even our sense of justice has been skewed and affected by sin. But this is what makes humanity different from all the other animals on the planet We've been made uniquely in the image of God, and we know right from wrong. There's no animal that has a sense of morality. <laughs> kind of reminds me of a hunter I heard about, was walking through the woods, and uh, there was this big grizzly bear that was just absolutely bellowing towards him. The hunter was a Christian. He said, I didn't know what to do. I just got on my knees, and I began to pray, oh, God, oh, God, I, please make this a Christian bear. To which the bear stopped dead in its tracks, raised a paw to heaven, and began to pray, God, I thank you for this meal that you've provided for me today. <laughs> so, so think about this. The mercy of God, this is an expression of God's love, and love is an, an attribute of God. But God's wrath is an expression of his justice. And it's what Isaiah 28 refers to as his strange work. The Bible says that God is love, but nowhere does the Bible say that God is wrath. He's holy, but his wrath is an expression of his holiness toward that which is not in keeping with his character. And so, strictly speaking, then, wrath is not an attribute of his nature, but it's an expression of his justice against sin. God doesn't, he doesn't delight in the destruction of his creatures. Ezekiel 33, 11, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. God says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And yet, at the same time, Deuteronomy 28, 63 says this, uh, as the Lord God took delight in doing good and multiplying you, talking about the Israelites, even so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. 
You say, well, how's that in keeping with what Ezekiel says about God taking no pleasure in the death of the wicked? That's harsh. No, what's being said in Deuteronomy 28 is that God's delight is in his justice being upheld. So listen, here's how the wrath of God exalts God and brings glory to God because it's the upholding of God's divine standard and his justice and his holiness. And God will not lower that standard for any one of his creatures. But he will uphold it. You say, well, what's keeping wrath from consuming humanity now? The patience of God. The long-suffering nature of God. And you think about the wrath of God. It's being held back by the mercy of God in this age of grace in which we live. And it's almost as if a dam is holding back the floodwaters of wrath, the judgment of God. But folks, there's coming a time when that dam will burst. Psalm 90, verse 11, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? And then the psalmist says this, so teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. When we think about the fact that God is angry with the wicked every day and that as such he must punish sin and the evildoer, We better number our days. We better take advantage of every opportunity to repent and be right. with. And listen, what more can God do for humanity than what he's already done through the gift of his son? Now, let me call a time in. That's just sort of a side note on what wrath is and why it's, what, it's what, you know, what the Bible teaches about it. Let's look at this text. In this text, notice, first of all, the plagues which are described. If this is a prelude to final judgment, the wrath of God, which is being stored up for the day of wrath, well, what will that involve? Well, it's going to involve plagues, and that's what we see through these seven bold judgments which are described uh, here in chapter 15 and chapter 16. You'll notice the phrase, I saw another sign in heaven. So that's a linguistic clue that this is the beginning of a new vision And this vision here, chapter 15, is sort of a prelude. Think of it as a vestibule. And uh, chapter 16, we walk into the theater of final judgment. So this 15th chapter is a prelude of what is going to happen, what, what, what John sees in heaven before it's sort of poured out on the earth. So you've got these series of judgments, the seals, the trumpets, and now the bold judgments. And when it's all said and done, the tribulation will have ended, Satan will be bound, the 1,000-year reign of Christ upon the earth will be ushered in. So really a significant portion of Revelation, obviously, is it's, it's dealing with this subject of the wrath of God, the judgment of God. And that may be a terrifying thing, and some folks may read that, and they may quake in their boots a bit, and if you're an unbeliever, you ought to. But if you're someone who's come to know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you've been saved from the wrath which is to come. Jesus Christ drank the cup of wrath for you. And that's what Paul tells the Thessalonian church. You know, the Thessalonians were so concerned that they had been left behind and that they were, uh, you know, in the tribulation, they were going to be experiencing judgment and wrath and all of that. 
And, and Paul reassures those believers by saying, you've been saved from the wrath which is to come. Jesus drank the cup of wrath for you. And so those who trust in Jesus Christ are going to be rescued from these coming days where God is pouring out wrath upon wicked, rebellious humanity. Those who reject the gospel, they'll experience wrath. And so that's these plagues then that are described. Notice what they are. And really in verse 1, we see a couple of important facts. The first of which, these bowls represent seven final plagues. And these plagues will be concentrated near the end of the tribulation period. And that word plague translates a term that means blow or wound. Uh, really the word kind of gets at this idea that these are not long, drawn-out ordeals, but uh, rather it's something sudden. It's something swift. You think about that cup there on the table full of tea, full of water. If you took it and you poured it out, it wouldn't be a slow drip. You know, we're not talking about something intravenous here. We're not talking about an IV drip here, something slow, a process. No, you pour out the contents of that cup, it's swift, it's sudden. That's the idea with these bold judgments. Whenever they're poured out, it's going to be swift. It's going to be final. It's going to be sudden. And so in chapter 16, you see what these bowls actually consist of. And here's just a little chart. Uh, we'll come back to this uh, next week. Uh, but the first bold judgment involves sores, which afflict those who accepted the mark of the beast. The second bold judgment involves the sea being turned to blood. The third, fresh water systems turned to blood. The fourth, mankind scorched by the elements. The fifth, uh, the beast's kingdom, his seat of government is even affected and afflicted. The sixth, the Euphrates rivers dried up and the world armies gather for Armageddon. The seventh bold judgment, the earth is literally shaken. And so you should see these as being one right after the other, rapid fire judgments, a final end time shaking just before the return of Jesus Christ. That's what's being described. That's what these plagues are. Now, something else to consider is what these plagues accomplish. They're going to accomplish something. And again, this will be the final expression of God's wrath toward unbelieving, rebellious humanity. Uh, notice what John says here. He sees seven angels with these seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. So I'd underline that phrase there. Once it's all said and done, once these bold judgments have been poured out, the wrath of God will have been finished. That word there, um, it's the same word in John 19.30 that Jesus uttered on the cross when he said, it is finished. You think about tetelestai. Teleo, I believe, is the Greek word there. It's a word that means accomplished. <laughs> what was it that was accomplished on the cross? Well, it was Redemption. But what is it that will be accomplished here once these bold judgments have been poured out? It's judgment. The end time judgment of God. In fact, I heard one expression of this word when Jesus uttered this word on the cross that this was the word uh, that an artist would use in those days once he had finished his artistic piece. He would step back, teleo, tetelestai, 
Not one final, not one more stroke would mess it up. The final stroke is finished. So once these bold judgments have been poured out, that's the final stroke. The wrath of God will have been finished. That's the idea here. So that's the plagues. Now notice secondly, the praises which are heard. Now see, this where you might find a little bit of it kind of hard to process. How is it that we see plagues and praises in the same passage of Scripture? Because remember, God is to be worshipped and exalted for all that he does and in all that he is. Even in the midst of his wrath, he's to be praised. He's glorified. He's glorified. And so there are praises then that John hears in verses 2 and 4. The subject matter of verses 2 through 4 seem to be in contrast to that of verse 1. But even in the midst of wrath, aren't you glad that God can be praised for his grace? In delivering vengeance on his enemies, he delivers victory to his own. And again, this is the pattern throughout redemptive history. Think about how the same floodwaters which drowned Noah's wicked generation also lifted Noah and his family to safety. What was the difference? Well, the difference was the ark, whether or not one was within the ark. Or the same destroyer that passed through the land of Egypt, striking down all of the firstborn. That same destroyer passed through the households of Israel. What was the difference? The difference was the blood of the lamb that had been applied to the doorposts. That was the difference. Or the same Red Sea that became dry land for the Israelites also became a deluge that drowned Pharaoh's army as they chased after the Israelites. And the only difference was the staff that Moses held in his hand and the power of God. So even in the midst of judgment, there is joy for the people who know God. We've been saved from judgment, saved from wrath, and even saved through judgment. Because think about it, the judgment for my sin and your sin was poured out in Jesus and endured by Jesus on the cross. So you've got this scene in heaven, verse 2, John sees this untold multitude of people there in heaven, they're holding harps, standing beside the glassy sea, all spread out before the throne of God. So the question is, who are these men and women? Where do they come from? Well, notice John tells us. He identifies them as those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name. So it's a picture of those saints then who come out of the tribulation. Those believers who uh, come to faith during the tribulation period. Those believers who were martyred by the beast and his evil system. So these saints then, they're victorious over the pressures of the day. What are those pressures? Uh, Chuck Swindoll says there are at least three pressures that these have overcome. He says the first is political pressure. They've overcome the beast's military prowess. The second is the religious pressure through the beast's idolatrous image. And he says the third is economic pressure through the mark of the beast in order to buy and sell. So they refused to bow the knee to the beast. They refused his system. They refused to take his mark. They refused to identify with, the, with him even though it meant 
their own lives. But what did Jesus say? He said, you know what? Better to fear the one. Don't fear those who can destroy the body but can't kill the soul. Destroy the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Uh, what profit is it to a man if he gained the whole world only to lose his soul? So these take their number with the men and women who were upheld in Hebrews chapter 11, the Hall of Faith chapter, who refused the passing pleasures of sin for a season in pursuit of a better country. (laughs) Folks, that's us too. Because we face these kinds of pressures from the world around us all the time, don't we? Political pressure, religious pressure, economic pressure, cultural pressure. I, I, you know, bow down to the mores of the culture, buy into the ideas and the philosophies of the day. You know, if you want popularity with the culture, if you want to be successful in business, if you don't want to be canceled, then bow down to the beast. But these refuse, and they're victorious for it. And so all of these pressures are going to push people to this point of decision that's life or death. And so they've made their decision. Death, but everlasting life is their reward. The world looks at that and the world says, what a waste. This life is all that there is. But we as the people of God know that this life is only a brief drop in the bucket compared to what lies before us in eternity. You live to be 75, you live to be 80. That's 75, 80 trips around the sun. But even then, what's that compared to the eternity that we have to live with God in endless joy that's ours? So I'm not going to forfeit that for just a little bit of momentary satisfaction. Jim Elliott said it this way. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. People looked at his life and thought, man, what a waste. Young men died taking the gospel to the Alka Indians in South America. Had his whole life in front of him. Well, by the world's standards, by the world's definitions. Let me tell you something. He was ushered into a heavenly reward that will not fade, that will not devalue won't be affected by inflation and all of this stuff. You talk about your retirement account. Someone says, man, love, I'm getting my retirement account. All this inflation stuff and this stuff going on with Ukraine, my retirement account, my 401k, boy, just Social Security ain't going to be a thing when I get to retire. Let me tell you something. I got Social Security that's out of this world. I got eternal security. So verse 3 says that these saints are full of song. And is there any wonder why they're so full of song? By the way, there's a lot of singing throughout the book of Revelation. You ever considered it? I mean, we're just, the saints have got, what are they doing in heaven? They're singing, they're singing, they're singing. And it's only the people of God who are singing in Revelation. It's not the followers of the beast. It's not Antichrist. It's not the false prophet. It's not the dragon. They're not, they don't have anything to sing about. But the people of God sing the song of Moses, the servant of God. They sing the song of the Lamb. And what are those songs? What what, what do they point to? What are they symbolic of? What, What do these praises mean? Well, the first is an anthem of retribution. 
the song of Moses. And it goes all the way back to Exodus 15 and the deliverance of God's people from their bondage. Wrath is poured out on the Egyptians through 10 plagues. They're on the banks of the Red Sea. What does Moses do? He leads the people in an anthem of worship. Exodus 15, 1, Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. They're praising God for his righteous retribution, exalting God for his judgments. And so God's justice, it's always true. By the way, that's what Psalm 19 says. The judgments of the Lord are true and they're righteous altogether, which means all of humanity is without excuse. God's justice is always true and he's worthy of worship because of his justice. And that can't be said about man and man's system of justice. Because even though man has an innate sense of justice, just like everything else about man, his sense of justice has been affected by sin so that it's skewed. I said that a minute ago. Uh, Proverbs says it this way, there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. For example, it's considered socially just to allow a biological male to compete in women's sports simply because he identifies as female. That's socially just by today's cultural standards. And so the social justice advocates on the left, right now, they're championing the cause of Leah Thomas, biological male, competing at the NCAA level, collegiate athletes, women swimming. And in their flawed way of thinking, it's unjust to refuse him that right on the basis of discrimination. Therefore, it's just and it's right by modern definition. See how man's system of what's right and wrong can get so skewed and flipped upside down whenever man rejects the authoritative, objective standard of justice and truth laid down in God and his eternal character, unchanging character, his fixed word. So we're reaping the benefits of a generation now who've said there is no universal standard of right and wrong. I speak my own truth. And it's ironic to me that the same crowd who claim to be such champions of women are also the same crowd who are championing the cause of a man who identifies as a woman who's competing in women's sport. Folks, that's messed up. It's messed up. But why is it messed up? Because man, even his system of social justice is messed up without God at the center of it. But not God. His justice is always true. It's always perfect. And he's worthy of worship for it. And so that's what these saints in heaven are praising God for. This is an anthem of God's retribution. That which is not in keeping with God's character has got to be met in the fierceness of his wrath. It's inevitable. But you see, it's also an anthem of redemption. The song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Notice they sing the song of the Lamb. And that praises God for his retribution, but also for redemption. 
Again, you go back to Exodus 15 in the Song of Moses and you can see how they worship God for his salvation. The same hand which shattered the enemy is also the same hand which saved his people. (laughs) The same God who acts in judgment on Israel's enemies is also the same God who achieves the salvation and redemption of his people. John Phillips says it this way, the Song of Moses was sung at the Red Sea. The Song of the Lamb is sung at the Crystal Sea. The song of Moses was a song of triumph over Egypt. The song of the Lamb is a song of triumph over Babylon. The song of Moses told how God brought his people out. The song of the Lamb tells how God brings his people in. The song of Moses was the first song in Scripture. The song of the Lamb is the last song in Scripture. The song of Moses commemorated the execution of a foe, the expectation of the saints, the exaltation of the Lord, and the song of the Lamb deals with those same three themes. So John hears these saints singing this very same song, exalting God for his righteous retribution, exalting God for the redemption of his own. And folks, listen, let me tell you something. You ain't got to wait to heaven before you can sing. You can sing now because of what God's done in your life. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we of all people have something to sing about. So we shouldn't come in on Sunday morning and just sit there. Preacher, you ain't heard me sing. I'm telling you. You don't want to hear me sing. No, I don't, but God does. It ain't about whether I hear you sing or not. It's not about what anybody else around you hears or says or not. You know Jesus? Has he done something in your life? Has he redeemed your life from destruction? And you've got something to sing about, don't you? Wow. Newton captured this thought. The fourth stanza of his hymn that we love so much. Oh, and we've been there 10,000 years. Bright shining as the sun. We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. You're never going to get bored with it in heaven. It'll get sweeter and it'll get sweeter and it'll get sweeter as you take in more and more and more of the infinite God. Well, let's talk about the preparations which are made. And let me just finish with this. John sees the sanctuary in heaven. It's opened up. Out of the sanctuary come these seven angels with the seven plagues of God. They're clothed in pure bright linen, golden sashes around their chest. You think about how that lines up with what Daniel sees in Daniel chapter 10, Daniel chapter 12. So here you have this. By the way, notice the sanctuary is open. That's something that couldn't be said of the sanctuary in the Old Testament which was a pattern of the heavenly sanctuary. The sanctuary was always closed. There was a veil that separated the sanctuary, the inner part of the sanctuary from the outer part of the sanctuary. Only one time a year could the high priest pierce the veil and go into the presence of God to make atonement for the sins of the nation. The people didn't have unfettered access to an open sanctuary. But John looks into heaven and he sees the sanctuary opened up. Why is it opened up? Well, because we know when the veil was torn, don't we? It was told when Jesus, his dying breath on the cross, the veil was torn from top to bottom, meaning now for the child of God. The sanctuary is always open. Unfettered, unhindered access. 
But you know, the last couple of verses, you see that there's smoke that fills the sanctuary. And that smoke is so awe-inspiring. It's, it's associated with the glory cloud of God, the power of God. We see this all throughout Old Testament Scripture. And the imagery there, John sees the same thing that Isaiah sees in many ways in Isaiah chapter 6. You think about what Peter, James, and John saw on the Mount of Transfiguration as Jesus was transfigured and his clothes were dazzling, brilliant, white, light, radiated everywhere. It was a cloud, a presence. And so this is an overwhelming presence of God that John sees. And so all of this is just a prelude to what's coming. The saints have reason to worship. The prayers of the saints who've suffered throughout the ages are about to be answered as God's final end time wrath is going to be experienced. But it won't be cause for celebration and worship on the earth. It'll be a terrible, terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You can close your Bible. I wanna, I wanna finish with, with, with something Many of you love the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. One of my favorite, probably the all-time favorite song that I have of the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir was taken from this very text. It's called the Song of Moses. And so before we close tonight, why don't you just listen to these words as they're put to music. And just reflect on the goodness of God in your own life. I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. And I saw as it were a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast, and over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass, having the hearts of God. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying,
stand with me. Let me tell you something. If sinful people who've been redeemed can stand and sing like that, now what do you imagine that's going to sound like with an innumerable multitude of the redeemed people of God from every nation, tribe, and tongue standing before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords singing? Amen. And folks, guess what? We're going to get to be a part of that one day. Lord, we love you. Thank you for redemption. Thank you that even in the midst of wrath, you remember mercy. And we're overwhelmed when we think about the depth of your mercy and the goodness of God and how Jesus drank the cup of wrath so that we can be spared and forgiven and called your own. And we praise you tonight, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.